Well, let's go ahead and get started. Now that I've conquered all the technical difficulties, this is kind of loud. Great, we had a great camp out yesterday, by the way, at Alabaster Tavern State Park. We went Friday night and camped out, and, and then uh, late Friday night, after all the kids were in bed, all the, most of the adults sat outside, and we looked at the stars. We could see the Milky Way. We could see every star you can't see because of light pollution. It was gorgeous. We had a great time. And then Saturday got up and did our... Is this hissing? Is this me hissing? Yeah. Anyway, so then Saturday morning we got up and had breakfast, and that was an adventure, trying to get the wood to light. Anyways, and then... Um, Finally broke down camp and went to the Alabaster Cavern. If you ever get a chance to go, you ought to just go. It's really pretty cool. It's a really neat area in those caverns. So we had a good time. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness to us and being with us. And we thank you for this morning. We thank you for health. We thank you for sustaining us day by day. We know that life is a gift from you. Every day is your, is your gift to us. May we never look at, take it for granted. May we always lift up our hearts rejoicing and giving you thanks. We pray for our friend Steve McEwen. We ask you to be with him and Tina as they, she cares for him and as he gets the tests and figure out, figures out what's going on. And, uh, I pray, Lord, for a resolution. I pray for some rest and peace. pray for young Ben Gettle and ask you to continue to be with him and, and help him, Lord. Bless us, Father, as we jump into Psalm 42 and, and guide us. And may we grow and learn and um, rejoice in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're doing we're back to the Psalms by popular request. So we're now at Psalm 42 and 43. So I'm going to hand out, uh, somebody can help me out. Can you help me out? Could you hand these out on that side? And I'm going to ask Mr. Schaffner. Yeah. Oh, I need one for Susan. Susan needs one right here. So we're now in book two. So remember the Psalms are broken up into five books. And so we stopped and took a break at the end of book one. And now we're starting book two. The interesting thing about book two is the fact that there are a lot more Psalm writers of various kinds. Like this is, this is the first one in book two. And you'll notice it's the sons of Korah. All right. So there's going to be a lot more in book two that are from other writers, not David specifically. Okay. And so that's kind of a... A unique aspect to it. Uh, there's a new season that's happened as well, and we're going to get into that here in just a minute. Um, but that psalm, kind of a background. Thank you. You just put it right there. Good. Thanks. So let's go to Psalm 42 and 43. And the reason why I'm doing Psalm 42 and 40, I'll tell you why I'm doing it later. But they, you listen, and you will figure out what I'm going to say. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before you, or before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? But while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude of keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation of my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, Yahweh commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day, all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation of my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. 
Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your, te- your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Now can you see why we read Psalm 42 and 43 together? Can you pick anything out in there maybe that lets you know that those two might actually go together? Yeah. That refrain, that chorus comes up three times. Okay? By the way, there's extra copies of Psalm 42 and 43 here if you need a copy. Very good. So you've got that. There's a couple of other things too. There's another refrain that shows up. Anybody see the other refrain? It's, a, it's stated in Psalm 42 and it shows up again in Psalm 43. Yeah, there's that, that chorus, that threefold chorus. But there's another refrain or another statement. Yeah, so that's part of that, that's part of that chorus. Do what? Yeah, why have you forgotten me? So back in 42 verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Then 43 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why do, you, do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. So it just keeps repeating some of these themes throughout. So these two psalms really do go together. So um, if you want to, it's not a really classy title, but Panting, Casting, Hoping. That gives you kind of the three sections of these two psalms together. So here's what I'm going to break it out. Pants my soul, verses 1 through 5 of uh, 42. Cast down soul, verse 42, verse 6 through 11. And then to all of Psalm 43 with no parentheses at the end. That's funny. Hope-filled soul. Okay, that's the three points. All right, so Psalm 42 and 43 were either originally one psalm when they were written or they were intentionally set up as part A, part B to go together. And so that's why they're put there. Like I said, they either were one psalm and at some point uh, as the compilers were putting together the Psalter, they decided to break it up for various reasons. Uh, either that or the writer actually intended it to be part A, Psalm 42, and part B, Psalm 43. Okay, But they were always meant to go together and you can't miss it. The course, the threefold course, some of the repeated statements in there. So there's, we already saw, talked about the repeated statements and thoughts all the way through. There's some repeats in Psalm 42. Did anybody see any of the repeats in Psalm 40, inside of Psalm 42? Besides the chorus. I'm calling the chorus the why are you cast down my soul, why are you disquieted within me, etc. Okay, so besides the chorus, what else do you see? Anything else you see maybe uh, repeated? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There is a repetition. So notice the, um, at the end of ver- uh, beginning of verse 4, these things I remember. So he's talking about God and worshiping God. Um, but these things I remember, and then he does it again in verse 5. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. There's a remembrance here, kind of re- reciting for the purpose of reminding. I think that's really helpful to, re- to keep hold of, is that we often have to remind ourselves of things that we already know. Right? And that's a good thing to do, especially in a situation like Psalm 42. Okay? So the inscription reminds us that this was for the public corporate worship of God's people. As it begins, it's just right there at the top. This is, this is part of verse 1 in the Hebrew. So this is just as inspired as the rest of verse 1 and all the rest of the psalm. The inscriptions are part of God's Word. To the choir master, a masculine of David of the sons so it reminds us that this is meant for corporate worship. Um, it can be used personally, individually, and in our families, but it's meant for corporate worship. I just want to remind us that that inscription keeps that there for us. So who in the world were the sons of Korah? Anybody know? Ah, hold that thought. Anybody else? Ah, they're part of the Levites, okay, which is Korah of Dathan and Abiram's rebellion. He's a Levite, okay? Keep that, keep it in mind, okay? But he's, huh? He's part of the singing choir of the temple, or his family was. The sons of Korah were one part of the choir that sang at the temple. Yeah, good, very good. Well, let's do this. Let's do a little bit of background on Korah. 
So in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 54 through 61 and 66 through 70, we find out that Korah, or excuse me, that Kohath, so Korah was part of the Kohathites. Remember, anybody remember the Kohathites? What are they supposed to do that you're not supposed to do anything else with or treat like normal? What are they supposed to do? They're to carry around the furniture of God's tabernacle, right? Not on a moving cart. They carry it on their shoulders, right? That's the, that's the Kohathites. And inside the Kohathites was a large clan called the sons of Korah. And so... 1 Chronicles 6 tells us that the, that the Kohathites, so Korah is part of this. I'm just trying to make a connection here. Korah is part of this spread. The Kohathites were spread specifically around Judah and uh, Benjamin down here by the temple. But there was a large section of the Kohathites also up here in the northern region. Now in First Chronicles, moving, in 2 Chronicles, why would it be important to remember that there were some up north besides the south. What happens in, yes, the two kingdoms, right? So God brings judgment upon uh, His people because of, of, their, of Solomon's sin, etc. And so remember, judgment, uh, uh, a fractured kingdom is God's judgment upon His people, right? And so God brings judgment, they fracture. And so some of the Kohathites, which would have included Korah, are up here. What does Jeroboam do almost immediately after he takes off the northern region of God's people in this faction of of God's church up there? What what does Jeroboam do almost immediately? Creates different places of worship. Huh? Yeah, he throws the Levites out of their office and he makes anybody that can pay the price. So simony, he pays, so you pay for your way into... The clergy, okay, what else? What else does he do? What's he set up at those two alter, two primary alternative places of worship? Huh? Yeah, he's got the priest there, but what is, what is he set up there? Synchristic worship, idols, specifically golden calves, right? Golden bulls, which takes you back to Exodus 32. I'm sure he probably sold that on. Let's get back to old time religion. I'm serious. I think that's probably how he sold it because he calls the calves Yahweh. Just like Aaron called the golden calf Yahweh. Here's the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay? Alright? So, and then they have an alternative festival day. Right? The eighth month. Instead of the seventh month, the eighth month. So if you're up here and you're loyal to the Lord, right? And you wish you could come back to the temple... And yet Jeroboam is closing the doors, right? He's not allowing people to leave if, they, if he can stop them, okay? And he set up this whole alternative worship service and Siri, uh, uh, religion up here. That's Psalm 42. So if you have that in mind and you listen to how he writes Psalm 42, you realize he's up here somewhere wishing he could be back down here with the temple. He's not able to be at public corporate Worship that God had set up. Does that make sense? I've given you a whole historical background there. Sorry, there's more to it, but there you go. Any questions before we move on? All right, so the sons of Korah have a family history. And Caitlin let the cat out of the bag. Good job, Caitlin. It leaves a black mark on their name. Korah was one of the rebels with Dathan and Abiram in number 16. Moses, you've taken too much on yourself. Who, why are you in charge? You should give us part of this, right? And what does God do in response to that? Number 16. Yeah, He consumes them and their families. The earth opens up, right? Or then there's other things that happen as well, right? So number 16, Korah is there. So there's a black mark in the family history. So being a son of Korah may not be a happy thing, right? You know what I'm saying? Okay. I remember we were in Mississippi. We were uh, outside of, um, we were a little church outside of Canton, Mississippi, a little PCA church. Uh, the building was probably a hundred and something years old, so it was great. So the eight people who were part of that church, the acoustics were awesome in there, so they sounded like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. It was great. But one day, one of them was sitting out in front of the church building with me and goes by this truck and this guy drives by and he goes, oh, that's one of the Smiths. Oh, what's wrong with the Smiths? 
Well, their great-granddad was a chicken thief. Oh my goodness, that was a totally different world to live in, right? So being a son of Korah may not have been a, a happy thing. So there's a black mark in the family history. Okay? And so uh, Jude puts it this way. Jude 11. Woe to them. Talking about the false teachers. For they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. He's remembered for being a rebel. Korah's rebellion. Okay? And here's one of the psalm writers. Psalm 42 is one of the sons of Korah. So Psalm 42 and 43 are a big shift in Korah's history, Korah's family history. Because notice, as we were reading Psalm 42 and 43, what, is, what do the sons of Korah want to do? What does this writer, one of the sons of Korah, want to do? Psalm 42 and 43, what does he want to be? Back to the temple. Right? It's a shift in family history. And so, dear friends, be patient with your family. And be patient with your ancestral his- history. God can do amazing things in our families. Praise the Lord. Right? Okay. There we go. So any questions before we move on? We're getting ready to get into the psalm now. Hey, when, when you guys do ringtones, make sure you put like ACDC on there or something like that. That would be awesome. All right. Anybody, any questions? All right, here we go. So the first part is verses 1 through 5. So look at verses 1 through 5. So what picture is the sacred songwriter employing to describe his situation? What's the picture he's using in Psalm 42, verses 1 through 5? He's thirsty. Yeah, he's thirsty for God, but there's a, it's a picture there. A drought, okay? Just like a deer running around in Oklahoma a year ago, right? Where's the water, Right? He's using a drought picture probably because at this point, maybe that's part of his own experience or maybe he's written this psalm over a period of of time. And the first part, that drought, that external circumstance pictures his internal circumstance. Okay? It's a drought. He feels thirsty and dry like all the land and like animals feel in the middle of a drought. Right? He's probably seeing it and watching it and then going, that's how I feel. Okay? Very good. Um, so, uh, well, before we do that, anything else you see there in verse 1 and 2? Yes, isn't that interesting? So, probably an emphasis there. I'm not talking about Jeroboam's image. I'm talking about you, the living God. Yeah, very good. Good call. Anybody else? Fred? Yep, yep. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I remember doing some survival training with the scouts and stuff, and it was one of the things they said is, don't eat food. If you don't have water, don't eat food. Go look for water. Like you've got to have water. You can live for a couple of weeks without a, a week or so without food if you had to. You can't live very long without water, right? Great. Well, that brings me then to this question: Have you ever panted and thirsted for God, for the living God? What a great description and a question to ask ourselves, right? Do you really thirst after God? Really desire? I mean, Jesus stands in John seven. He talks about uh, whoever comes to me. Out of him will spring the, the rivers of living water because you'll have the Spirit, but it, it's coming to me to drink, and that comes up also in Revelation. Whoever's thirsty, let him come, right? And so it's a good question for us to ask ourselves, have I ever really thirsted or panted for God? Anybody ever been in a situation where you're just desperate or you just find yourself, you found yourself maybe in a morning devotion and you just break down and you're just going, I, don't, I have not longed for you in a long time. Right? What a great picture there in Psalm 42. So this thought goes along, by the way, with this morning's sermon. Just a hint. Listen for it. Just the way it worked out. But that verse 1 and 2, just the thought there, longing for God, panning for Him, is going to go along with the sermon. So 
Listen for that connection. I won't make it necessarily in the sermon, but you should be able to pick it up. So is there something specific that the singer, singer aches for? The last part of verse 2. Yeah, in what way? What would, how would you, where were you, did you get that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, good call. That's exactly right. So he cannot go to the temple at this point. But notice he's calling going to the temple, being involved in public worship with those words, sacraments, and prayer as appearing before God. I can't appear before God. I wish I could appear before God. There's a close connection to corporate worship and our walk with God and our fellowship with Him. When somebody says to me, I want to get closer to Jesus... I ask, I'll ask them, if they're not going to church, where are you going to church? Well, I'm not going to church, just me and Jesus. No, that's why you're not growing any closer. He's opened the door, He's given you the way, and you're rejecting what He's given you. You will draw closer the more engaged you are involved in worship. I mean, that's a means of grace, is what we call the word sacraments of prayer. And what does that mean? It's just not a cool phrase. It means God actually engraces us to draw us even closer. All right? And you start to get that sense right here with the, the priest. He sees it. So I wish I could go to the temple so I could appear before God. Right? What an important statement. So what's the problem or what's the roadblock or the barrier that keeps him from attaining his deep desire? Anybody know? It's not listed here. I gave it to you actually already. Yeah, Jeroboam, right? And, and whatever else is going on to keep him from moving there, or keep him from going there. Because remember, Jeroboam set up his alternative worship for a specific reason. One specific reason is mentioned when you're in 1 Kings 12. Does anybody remember what that one specific reason is? He didn't want them to leave because he was afraid he would lose the kingdom. If they went back to Jerusalem, their loyalties would shift. It was all about his political power and his own prestige and his own, his own ambitions. So he's going to force everybody as he can to stay right where they're at. Okay? So there's a roadblock. Okay? So is there an event that portrays uh, what, what he means by coming and appearing before God? A, a scene that would satisfy his hunger and slake his thirst. And um, If you want to, you can look at verse 3 and 4. Actually, you should probably look at 3 and 4 to answer that question. Yes, entering into worship, right? Leading as a choir, as either a choir member or a choir leader, or singing leader, he would lead the procession into the into the temple and the worship, right? Okay, very simple. It's a very simple answer. It's just right there. How would I, I, my, I pour out my soul? How I would go, uh, remembering how I would go with the throng and lead in the procession to the house of God with glad glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude festival okay and so there's the event that he's picturing as part of coming appearing before God um, and it would and he's he's stating this is what would slake my thirst is being able to enter into your worship again and again another challenging thought how often do we yearn ache to enter into God's presence in by his assembly worshiping with his people? When was the last time you really savored, you know, man, I can't wait till the scriptures are actually read. I can't wait until I get to have bread and wine. I cannot wait until we can gather together and spend some time actually praying together. That's his yearning. Okay? It's a good challenge for us as we think about that. We often take it for granted because we do it every week. You know? Maybe sometimes, I wouldn't ask this for anybody, but maybe sometimes God needs to put us in a country where we can't go to worship for a few weeks until we go, oh, man, I miss it. Yes. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think because of that line, I think that, Psalm 42 and 43 were written early in Jeroboam's reign. 
because Korah, this, this son of Korah, still remembers what it was under Solomon to be able to go to worship. So this is probably early in Jeroboam's reign, I'm guessing, just because of that little hint. Okay? Great. So talk more about the richest connection between verse 4 and verses 1 and 2. Just the slaking, our, you know, I'm, I'm hungering for you, I'm panting after you, I want to appear before you, and then this whole concept of corporate worship. Anybody ever had a moment like that where you really miss and you just felt satisfied when you got there and got to be part of that? Silence is convicting. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I remember being deployed a few places and then, you know, we I delighted when the chaplain showed up out in the field and was bringing us, you know, a little worship, you know, some songs to sing and he preached a little homily and we had the Lord's Supper. My favorite memory of the Lord's Supper in the field was this pasty wafer, which always sticks to your mouth. That's terrible, right? And then for communion, it was a little squirt bottle with with wine in it. And you walk up, next, next. (laughs) But it was delightful. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with routine. Don't get, me, don't get me wrong here. There's nothing wrong with the normal, ordinary routine. Okay, That's not a bad thing. I mean, that's why the Lord gave us communion, for example. That's a normal, ordinary routine that constantly is a means of grace or, or any of those things. Prayer, knowing that you're going to be up and be at church at a certain time on Sunday morning. That routine is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with routine. So don't get, don't get me wrong what I'm talking about. It's our heart. That's what I'm talking about. What's our heart? like when we think about worship when we get up in the morning on Sunday morning is it like oh man not another Sunday <sighs> right or is it uh, uh, preachers do that by the way if you don't know this preachers do that what again right it's a hard issue so actually thinking you know even Saturday or Friday start praying Lord I really want to be with you in your presence with your people in the great assembly and I'm not yearning for it right now. And I should. Right? It's a hard thing. Anyway. If you got any questions or anything, pop up. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, I was so excited when we opened up and, you know, and people started coming. We all got back together again. Started slowly getting back together more and more. It was really delightful. But it is. Yeah, it does. That's a good example. So here's the first time the chorus comes up in verse 5 that it's used. And I love it because um, he's talking to himself. It's okay to talk to yourself. I just want you to know. He's talking to himself. Okay? But it's what he says that's really important. Yeah, so who is he talking to? I already just told you. How is he talking to himself? What is he saying to himself? He's not saying bucket up, buttercup. What's he saying? He is that. Yeah, he's preaching the gospel to himself. Hope in God, would you? Right? Okay? And I think that's important. I bet you... Uh, some of our counselors here could tell us about sometimes when people talk to themselves, they don't often say hope in God. They often say, it's the worst situation ever and everything just is dark and gloomy, right? We get in that loop where we start talking self-destructive talk and it's desperate. And here he's breaking into a dark situation with uh, preaching the gospel to himself. So he's kind of breaking that cycle, that destructive cycle. So here's how Tim and Kathy Keller put it in their little book, The Songs of Jesus. When we are discouraged, we listen to the fearful speculations of our hearts. What if this happens? Maybe it's because of that. Here instead, verse 5, we see the psalmist not merely listening to his troubled heart, but addressing it 
taking his soul in hand. What a great language. Taking his soul in hand, saying, remember this, old soul. He reminds his heart of the loving things that God has done. He also tells his heart that God is working within the troubles. This self-communion is a vital spiritual discipline. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones, a book that I highly recommend. Martin Lloyd-Jones was Welsh and he was a doctor in the early 1930s and so forth. And if it's hard for you to read uh, a long dissertation, every chapter is a long dissertation, right? And it's, it's, it can be fairly wooden, but it is a delightful book if you just stick with it. In the first chapter, he spends time talking about Psalm 42 and 43. His book is called Spiritual Depression. And I'm going to come back to this in a uh, little bit later. But he says, you must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must do, uh, go, it should be say go. You must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself. Defy, and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, talking about Psalm 42, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Defy yourself. Break in and I am not going to be depressed over this. I mean, there's things to be depressed over, but I am not going to let this run my life and take me down. Right? Not defy yourself. So that, that course, and it comes up three times, and, uh, two times in this psalm and once in Psalm 43. So any questions on the first five verses? We've got to move on pretty quickly here. All right, so verses 6 to 11, after arousing himself with why are you cast down on my hope, he becomes honest with himself. I love the way this is put. He tells himself, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And then the very first thing he says right in the middle of verse 5, my soul is cast down within me, right? Honesty's okay. I know I shouldn't be, but I am. That's okay. That's why, why do you think God made sure this was in the Psalms for you? Inspired, infallible, inerrant, right there in the Psalms for us. So that we would stop lying to ourselves and say, well, I should never be sad. What? What are you talking about? Be honest with God, right? Tell Him, my soul is cast down. I know it shouldn't be, but it is cast down. It's okay, you're not going to shock Him. He already knows that, Right? And so at this point, the sacred songwriter uses a different description to picture his situation. And what way does he, what is, what is the picture he uses? Starting in verse, uh, the rest of verse five, uh, verse, the rest of verse six, excuse me, the rest of verse six, and on into verse seven and following. Yeah. He's watching some waterfalls there at, uh, up in the, in the, uh, in the land of Jordan, up in the Hermon, the Hermon Mountain Range, it was right there in a specific place called uh, Mitzar, he'll mention, not Mitzar, right? He's watching that and he's saying, that's what my troubles feel like. As I watch this stuff wash over and how it just rumbles and thunders and how it sweeps everything away, that's how I feel right now. Right? So his, out, his external circumstance is picturing his internal situation. Okay, that's how I feel. Um, I already said that. So how does this picture portray, uh, portrayal express his circumstance? He just feels overwhelmed. Anybody ever felt overwhelmed? I mean, just like washed away in a flood. When we first got ready to be stationed, uh, I was going to start recruiting in Kerrville, Texas for the Air Force. And just as we were coming there, that whole region of the hill country in Texas has these arroyas everywhere. Right? And they may have a little stream in there or whatever. And then when a rain comes, 20 miles north of there, all of a sudden these little road close signs show up and say, watch for flood. And I mean, they come like that. Well, right before we got there, a guy was driving a bunch of kids from a church camp and went around those barriers. There was no water really out in the, in the river, down at the bottom, went out there, and as it almost always happens, his bus stalled. 
right in the middle and they turn around and they look, they can hear it, they look up and here's a 20 foot wall of water and rock and trees coming down. I think most of the kids were killed and that was just right before we got there. That's how he feels, that rushing water just sweeping him away. Yeah, so I want to ask, have you ever felt this way? And so it's great knowing that in Psalm 42, as you start reading Psalm 42, when you do feel that way, you're not alone. And you can take that and you can run to God. That's why He puts that there. This is how my people pray when they're in this situation, says John Calvin said, this is why the Psalms are there. This is how my people pray when they're in this situation. It's okay to do this. Take up these words. So he feels his soul is cast down, and yet, what does the sacred songwriter know? Verse 8, what does he know? Yes, and, and it's the fact that the Lord doesn't suggest his steadfast love. What does he do with his steadfast love? He commands it. There's a directive there. God is actually... His steadfast love is intentional. He is, it's coming. I mean, he will see it. He will know it like uh, even in this situation where he feels overwhelmed, right? At night, he, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Usually, what do you do at night when you're in a situation like that where you're being washed over by this storm, this torrential rain and flood? What do you normally do at night? When you're in your bed, lay there awake, worrying, your head's spinning, right? You're always doing the what if, right? I love the fact that, I think it was Paul Tripp used to say in some of his books, he used to say, look, this is what God thinks about false prophets, Deuteronomy 13, etc., and we're all false prophets because we tell ourselves, this is what's going to happen, and then it doesn't happen. We're all false prophets. Stop being a false prophet. Instead, when you're on your bed at night, and your head's spinning and you're doing the what if, stop and do what he's talking about here. I know this for certain. You command your steadfast love and I'm going to, um, and in the, the night your song is with me. It's the prayer of the God of my life. Okay? Doesn't mean you can't say, Lord, I'm afraid of these things that they may happen, but don't let them suck you into the vortex and just suck you down. Okay? And so Keith and Kristen Getty in their little book called Sing put it this way, and I'm just thinking about how this shows up in this psalm. I sing because I'm free to run from all that tore me apart and to run to all that makes me whole. I'm free to run to all that makes me whole. And sing the song of God in the night, the God of my life. Right? All right. But singing about God's steadfast love doesn't take away the anguish. Instead, what does it encourage the psalmist to do next? Verse 9 and 10. What does it encourage the psalmist to do next? Hey, it keeps on talking, right? Just like Job. That's what made Job different than his three friends. He kept the conversation going. He's the only one in the book of Job praying is Job. His three theologically astute friends never talked to God. They only talked about Him. Notice the psalmist keeps the conversation going. He's still talking to the Lord, right? Okay, and what does he do in, that, in, his, in his prayer? What does he say? Verse 9 and 10. I feel forgotten. What else? He also lays out his situation. What's his situation, verse 9? Yeah, the oppression of the enemy. I go mourning. Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Right? And then he describes what it feels like. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. And what's their taunt? This taunt will come up again when we get to chapter 43. Where's your God? They were all... I hate to say it this way. They were all name it and claim it. Only good things happen to good people. Well, you must not be good because bad things are happening to you. Where's your God? Right? That kind of sass and taunt. Right? Great. 
And so notice that asking the why questions and the how long questions is not an offense to God. It is taking God seriously. I'm going to say it again. Asking God the why questions and the how long questions is not an affront to God. It is actually taking God seriously. Because you're keeping the conversation open. You know He can fix this. You know He's bigger than you. He's omniscient. You know all those things. But your situation feels stifling and feels like you're drowning. Why? It's okay to say it. It's okay to ask. Okay? So, verse 11, we're back to the chorus again, and here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his book, Spiritual Depression. How this man's treatment, uh, now this man's treatment was this, instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. What? Anyways, why art thou cast down on my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. Now he stands up and he says, listen, uh, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have had but little experience. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business had you to be disquieted? Like taking yourself in hand. I remember talking to a fellow who was, none of you know, but he was, deeply depressed and we were and he was anxious all the time and I said so when you're when you're in that moment you have little voices in your head he goes how'd you know he said are they telling you that you're a loser how'd you know did they tell you the situation was really that this was desperate and you're not going to make it out how'd you know right and then I said let me give you a little medicine it's not going to fix you but it might help I took him to Psalm 42 and 43 I said talk to yourself and tell yourself to shut up. And I'm going to preach the gospel to you. Sit there for a minute while I preach the gospel to you. Right? And that's kind of what Jones is saying. Grab, take hold of yourself. Because you're going to talk to yourself anyways. So why not tell yourself about Jesus and what God has done in Jesus? Right? I love Psalm 42 and 43. Finally, somebody's talking to themselves. I feel whole. Affirmed, that's what I should have said. So Ed Welch in his book, Running Scared, says this. Is it wrong to be afraid? Is it sinful? Maybe, but put the questions on hold. The emphasis in Scripture is, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. The issue isn't so much whether we will be afraid and anxious at times. What is important is where we turn or to whom we turn when we are afraid. The God who calls you to trust in Him when you are afraid will spend a great deal of time showing you that you can trust Him. He was not talking about this psalm, but I felt like that fit very much with this course and what you see the writer doing. Any questions before we get to Psalm 43? Okay. So now 43, the hope-filled soul. So the psalmist, should be a, a, a possessive uh, little hype in there. So the psalmist, psalmist's whole aim has been God's presence, especially as experienced in corporate worship. That was Psalm 42. Now he turns to his detractors and his oppressive circumstances. That's verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 43. He now comes to talk about them specifically, and he's, this is where he starts actually spending more time uh, focusing his requests. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. These are the people he lives with. This is Jeroboamsville, right? He lives with these people. It's not necessarily every one of them. There are others probably that agree with him, but there's a social pressure to comply with Jeroboam's mandates that he just feels like he's overwhelmed with these people. And so he says, vindicate me. O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. And the reason why? For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Now he's back to that again. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And so here he's turning to his detractors 
he's still praying and talking to God. He's just pointing at them, saying, look at what they're doing. Okay? So where does he long for God to bring him? Verse 3 and 4. Yep. Back to the temple. We're back to that again. Right? And listen to the way he puts it. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Show me how I can get back there. Right? Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. And what does he call God? My exceeding joy. My exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre. I'll be part of the music that's done at, at church. And praise you with a lyre, O oh God, my God. And there again, he's, O oh God, my God. Okay? And so the, now how does the chorus sound as you come to the very end? As you look at that chorus, here it is the third time. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation, and my God. Now how does that chorus sound? By the time you get through all of Psalm 42 and you get to Psalm 43, you come to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Far more encouraged at this point. Yeah, I would think so. That's what it sounds to me like. Anybody else? Yeah, there's hope. Okay. Great. So Psalm 42 and 43 challenges our modern, contemporary, emaciated view of church and worship. Right? Who asked? Oh, you did. Yes. So you think about it. Church is optional. It's just another service club in the U.S. with a cross. It's a Tupperware party with a cross. You take it or leave it. Right? And that's happening. And that's been going on for, for some generations in our country. But it's just a take it or leave it attitude. Right? Or it's used car shopping attitude. Walk around kicking the tires. I don't like the smell of this car. I'm going to go over here. And so there's all of that happening. But then church is all about me. So if it doesn't fit what I want, I'm going to go find something I want, right? So we're all consumers. By the way, um, uh, Eugene Peterson talks about the consumer mentality that has swamped, swamped the church. He wrote about it in 2014, whatever that book was he wrote in 2014. It is a big deal. It's a problem we have. I'm not saying you can't find a church to fit into. Don't get me wrong. I'm just, or that you can get into. But what I always often tell people is, when I pray for them, I pray for them, I say, Lord, put them in a place where they can serve you better and be served so they can grow. But notice that they can serve you better and serve so that they grow. It's a totally different attitude than a consumer attitude. Right? So how else would um, Psalm 42 and 43 challenge modern, contemporary, emaciated view of church and worship? How does it? Yeah? Okay? Okay? Yeah. Keeping, keeping the conversation going. Yeah, it's not instant. And notice the, the emphasis, his, his whole idea of appearing before God is in public worship with God's people, not himself alone as a lone ranger. It's with God's people in corporate worship, doing, worshiping God the way He has set it up, right? Okay. And so again, the Gettys in their little book sing. The sight and sound of a congregation singing praise to God together is a radical witness in a culture that rejects God and embraces individualism. Our songs are the public manifesto of what we believe. It's a great way to, to put that. That's why I've said before, one of the gauges or rule of thumb that I use is when I'm in a church, if I look at how many people are singing and are they actually singing, right? And that's a good indication of where that congregation's spirituality is. When, it's, when the music is, whatever the situation, but whenever the music is too far and none of them can sing it because the pitch is too high, that's a problem. When you look around and all the songs, only the women are singing and only half of them are singing and two men are singing, and the rest aren't singing, that's a huge red flag indicator. Right? Okay? I mean, if, especially because you think, well, anyway, there's a whole thing I could say here, but, but I love the way they put it because I think that's exactly right. 
our songs are the public manifesto of what we believe. And it's that public witness. It's a radical witness. I remember we were in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, we were at a, it was our first PCA church to be a part of. So it was 1993. And um, it was the only PCA church in town in Omaha at the time. And some Chinese uh, students came, right? They, they were from China. And they came and they were shocked at how much we liked to sing and we sang together. And we enjoyed singing together. It's, that's the one thing they remember. They didn't remember anything else. That's the one thing they talked about. And I think about it because you see, you see videos of Chinese um, in, China, in, in China now. You still see them singing, but it's almost like it's forced and it's part of the propaganda and so forth. They were enamored by the fact that we wanted to sing, we liked singing, and we sang together, and we sang happy, or as happy as you can be, depending on the song, right? We sang together. It just stood out to them. I think that's a illustration of what the Gettys are saying there. So what is one thing our dive into Psalm 42 through 43 encourages you to do? Hal already mentioned keep the conversation going. What else? Huh? Remember. What else? Yes, David chided David out of the dumps. Great, okay. So Psalm 42 specifically has been metered for us, and you sing it. In fact, one of the kids wanted us to sing it at when we were at the camp out Friday night. It was, your, it was Lauren wanted us to sing it. No, 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 I take it back. It was uh, Noel. Noel wanted us to sing it. As you guys sing with me, okay? As the heart longs for flowing streams, so longs my soul for thee, O God. My soul does thirst for the living God. When shall I come to see thy face? My tears have fed me day and night, while men have said, Where is your God? But I recall, as my soul pours dry, the days of praise within thy house. Why do I mourn and toil within when it is mine to hope in God? I shall again sing praise to Him. He is my help. He is my God. That was Psalm 42 metered for us. 662 in the Trinity Hymnal, if you ever want to look at it again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Psalm 42 and 43 being in our, uh, being in the Psalter and for us to, to grow from it and to learn from it. I pray for all of us that you would continue to command your steadfast love toward us day and night. And in the night, when our voices are going and our heads are spinning and we're panicky and we're doing the what-ifs, Lord, that we would sing your praise, we would pray to you, we would turn to you, we would preach to ourselves. Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God, because you are worth our hope. Prepare our hearts now to enter into the great assembly to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.